Amen. The Bible story of Job, it's uh, Job, this is what it looks like. Job is how it's pronounced. It's a book that, amongst those who are a little bit familiar with the Bible, should need no introduction. Uh, it's known as possibly the earliest written book in the Bible, and it is a long, mysterious story about suffering and God's justice. And in fact, many people who aren't Christians but are sort of curious and interested about religious stuff have read the book of Job and aware of it um, and thought about... When, when I was at uni, this would date me quite easily, actually, but there was, a, um, there was a song that hit the number one charts, at least in the kind of Triple J sort of world, called Bullet with Butterfly Wings by a band with the fabulous name The Smashing Pumpkins. And in the lead-up to the chorus, he said, um, uh, Even though I know, I suppose I'll show all my cool and cold like old Job. Um, and so even in like a rock song, at least, of the late 90s, um, Job featured there. Speaking of rock musicians, uh, Nick Cave, also an Australian musician, uh, had a great fascination with the Bible, including the book of Job. Here's how he writes about it in a very dark, twisty, black sort of way. Here's his take on the Bible. He said, Nick Cave said, I found the stories of the Bible calling to me from somewhere in my subconscious planted there in the choir boy days in my childhood. I was still writing songs for the band I was in, and I soon found in the tough prose of the Old Testament a perfect language, at once mysterious and familiar, that only reflected the state of mind I was in at the time, but actively informed my artistic endeavours. I found there the voice of God. Now, this is not a Christian person writing here, but he describes it as the voice of God that was brutal and jealous and merciless. For every bilious notion I harboured about myself in the world, and there were a lot of those, there in the Old Testament was its equivalent, leaping off the pages with its teeth bared. The God of the Old Testament seemed a cruel and rancorous God, and I, <laughs> I loved the way, he says, he would wipe out entire nations at a whim. I loved to read the book of Job and marvel over the vain, distrustful God who turned the life of his perfect and upright servant into a living hell. Job's friend Eliphaz observed, Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And those words seem, to my horrid little mind, just about right. And why wouldn't man be born into trouble, living under the tyranny of such a God? So it was the feeling I got from the Old Testament of a pitiful humanity suffering beneath a despotic God. And I be at this began to leap into my lyrics. It's pretty black, isn't it? Pretty grim. That's Nick Cave's dark, cynical take on the Bible and the book of Job, and it's depressing and it's bleak. And it's not the take of many Bible readers over the centuries. It's not the take that we'll be taking this morning. Um, in many ways, his read on the Bible is, as much as he admits, a mirror of his own feelings and thoughts at the time, as it is an accurate reading of the Bible or the book of Job. Here's a more generous take that I came across about uh, five or six years ago. Uh, this is a review of a book called The Terror of God by Navid Kumani. The review describes Kumani's fascinating thesis that the book of Job is not only about a stubborn individual who in the midst of incomprehensible suffering and endless calamities keeps saying that God has absolutely no reason to do this to him. Even more puzzlingly, this biblical text is also about a God who seems to be pleased by such a daring attitude to the point of offering a reward for Job. As such, Kamani writes, a curious notion takes shape of rebellion against God 
as an intimate, perhaps the most intimate aspect of faith. A weird thing to say. Rebellion against God, as Kamani puts it, is an intimate, perhaps the most intimate aspect of faith. I wouldn't necessarily put it that way, but there's an insight there that captures something of the riddle of this book of Job, that genuine faith, a personal relationship with God, authentic spirituality, freely verbalises its doubts, its fears, its struggles, its anger, its complaints. A dead, impersonal, ritualistic faith just goes through the motions and says the right words, well after it's believed them, just plods along. Well, God is good, God is right. Do you really think that? Not really, but I just say it. God is good, God is right. Do you even believe in God? Oh, I'm not even sure anymore, but God is good, God is right. But a living faith, as it goes through torment and struggle and doubt and trial and difficulty, stays connected with God and brings to God the prayers, the doubts, the struggles, the complaints, the anger. Sometimes the godly one is the one who dares to quarrel with God. Let's look at the book this morning. And uh, first of all, we'll just overview the story of the whole book. Um, and secondly, we'll look at the purpose of the book, or particularly the purpose of suffering, Job's suffering in the book. And then if we have time, I'll ask the question, but why is it so long? We'll see if we get to that or not. <laughs> Firstly, then, the story. Let's meet Job. Job chapter 1 begins by saying, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he'd sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking... Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. It does have a certain fairy tale quality to it. I'm not saying he wasn't a historical character, but the way the story is told has a certain idealised fairy tale telling, to an idealised telling. For here we have a good guy, a really good guy, and a blessed guy, a really blessed guy. Here is a picture of blessing. At our citywide gathering last Thursday, you can listen to that on our podcast or um, website, uh, I spoke about how the Bible gives a full picture of what blessing is and, and how that's a better way of thinking about a good life than just happiness, happyology. That blessing is relationship with God and enjoying all his good gifts in a lasting way. The good things God gives, feasts and flocks and riches and family, enjoying them, feasting and delighting, taking pleasure in them, in a lasting way, all enjoyed in relationship with God. And it seems like here we have Job as a living embodiment of that, at least until it stops lasting. <laughs> For he goes from blessing to cursing. The reason for it is presented in a heavenly wager, a dialogue between God and a character called Satan, that is, the accuser, the finger pointer who comes into God's presence and says, Job only does the right thing because you bless him. It's a skin-deep, self-interested kind of godliness here. Uh, 1 verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the accuser, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. 
Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. <laughs> Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands. So his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. He'll surely curse you to his face. As the story continues in chapter 2, a similar kind of accusation is repeated uh, where the Satan says, Ha! Skin for skin, 2 verse 4. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike Job's flesh and bones, and he'll surely curse you to his face. The accusation that humans only ever worship God and obey God, this idealised good one, Job, only worships and obeys God because he's self-centred, self-interested, content. Now again, there's a vivid storytelling dimension here. I don't think Job requires us to assume that this is literally how word-for-word dialogues go down in the heavenly court or something. That there is this sort of, so where have you come from? From wandering here and there from all the earth, okay. It's, it's a way of pulling back the curtain, not on the subbies equipment for Tuesday night, but instead on the dynamics of God's dealings in heaven in a potentially a more pictorial sort of way to help us understand that what's going out on for Job on earth is the result of something mysterious going on behind the curtain in heavenly places. A contest between God and evil spiritual forces. And so as a result of this challenge of the Satan against Job's sincerity and therefore against God's, ultimately you could say, God's ability to uh, create genuine goodness and worship and love between him and his creatures, something like that, this accusation of ultimately God's goodness and the goodness of his servants, the Satan is then given permission to afflict Job. Interestingly, he says, you do bad to Job, see what happens. And, and God, the Lord says, no, but I'll permit you to do so. And so the Satan afflicts his property, his servants, his family. Raiders take his oxen and servants in chapter 1, 13 and 15. Fire from heaven take his sheep and his servants in verse 16. Uh, raiders take his camels and servants in verse 17. And then a great thunderstorm collapses, a building upon his children in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And then in chapter 2, the Satan is permitted to afflict Job's own flesh. Verse 7, the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the tops of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. What a dreary image. And then Job's mates come and sit with him. Verse 11 to 13, sit Uh, For seven days and seven nights, no one said a word at the end of verse 13 because they saw how great his suffering was. At the end of a week, Job then speaks this great heart-wrenching lament, a cry of pain from the pit. Why was I ever born, he says. Verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May darkness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. You can see why Nick Cave was inspired by this kind of stuff, can't you? I don't know if there's really good, dark, grimy Christian lyrics that kind of pick up some of this stuff. It could be good, isn't it, if you're a, uh, 
a, a, a goth Christian songwriter, then you could take up Job 3 and write something really dreary. Why did I not perish, verse 11, at birth, and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breast them up be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace and I'd be asleep and at rest with kings and councillors of the earth in ruins. Deep pain, sorrow, grief, despair. This is raw, this stuff. It's real, it's blunt. The book is not actually a sincere contemplation of suicide. It's not celebrating or promoting actually seeking death but it's expressing the anguish of someone where that feeling is, wouldn't it be better if I were dead? Because life can be really, 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 really hard, as it was for Job. People read this story and relate to this story because they know life can be really, 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 really hard. Even for good people, godly people, righteous people, really, really hard. So terrible, it fills you deep with pain that hurts differently than any physical pain. So that you find yourself, even the godly, the upright, the trusting, the prayerful, find themselves saying these kind of black things. Or if they dare not say them, thinking them. The theologian Don Carson says, Job's arguments throughout the book mustn't be confused with the atheism of a philosopher like Bertrand Russell. Job's speeches are the anguish of a man who knows God and who wants to know him better and never once doubts the existence of God, who remains convinced at bottom of the justice of God, but who can't make sense of these entrenched beliefs in the light of his own lived experience. He cries out in pain. And at this breaking of the silence, Job's mates break their silence too. So Job's friends speak up in the long middle section of the book from chapter 4 right through towards the very end. Uh, there's, there's three cycles. Eliphaz speaks and then Job responds and then Bildad and then Job and then Zophar then Job. It's the first cycle that takes us through to chapter 14. And then Eliphaz speaks a second time and Job and then Bildad and Zophar and Job replying to each of them in turn up to chapter 21. And then a third cycle, Eliphaz speaks up and Job replies, Bildad super briefly, and then Zophar gives up. And this third cycle ends with a really long speech from Job, chapter 26, all the way to chapter 31. And just as you think you're getting to the end of the season, suddenly, like episode 9, a new character appears. Eliphaz, uh, Elihu rather, Elihu pops up. We didn't even know he was there. It's like, oh, <laughs> and there's that guy. Um, and and he's, he says he's a younger guy. He let others speak before him. Um, but now he feels he has to speak. And he kind of sort of sits in between Job and his mates, um, uh, not simply blaming Job for everything or charging God with injustice, but instead anticipating what's to come by talking about the mystery of God and his mysterious disciplining uh, ways in various ways. Chapter 32 to 36. Largely in this middle section of the book that goes for ages, which is why I've got this section we may not get to about why is the book so long. Largely it's Job's friend saying over and over and over again, stop saying such terrible things, Job. You must have done something to deserve this. Repent and turn back to God. Well, there's variations, but that's largely God's just. Uh, you wouldn't be suffering unless there was a good reason so there must be a good reason, so repent. And the fact that you're saying there's not a good reason and blaming God is another reason to repent, so repent. 
And then Job saying over and over again, well, back off. You know nothing. I'm innocent of any evil that would uh, uh, deserve this. Why on earth is God doing this to me? Something along those lines. And in the midst of all that, then, we get over and again reinforced. God is just. The mate's insisting that the, the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will be cursed. But then Job's saying, but hang on, I'm innocent. So if God is just and the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will be cursed, but I'm innocent, what's the deal with that? The friends largely insist, well, God is just and the righteous are blessed, so you must have done something wrong. <laughs> Job doesn't accept this, and so round and round we go. So why does Job... Oh, no, so hang on, let's get... Sorry, let's not... I need to get to the end of the story. God then appears to Job, and God speaks to Job, but doesn't seem to actually explain the riddle. It's remarkable. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job. Finally, the Lord appears after all these chapters, round and round in circles, and Job saying, where is God? What is God doing? If only I could speak to God. And then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, who is this? The darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? He speaks of the depths of the earth, the sunrise, the sunset, the the heights of the sky from where the rain and the snow come, the the stars and the constellations. He speaks of bizarre, wild, mysterious creatures of the world, the lioness, the raven, the goat giving birth, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, the eagle. Do you know these things? Can you make sense of them? Can you track them? He speaks to Job again in chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? And then he speaks of the great, mighty, fearful creatures, the behemoth and the leviathan that Job cannot tame. But God can. He doesn't answer Job's question. Rather says he is so much bigger and greater and grander and mightier and more mysterious in his dealings with all the world and the mysterious dark things at the fringes of the world than Job could possibly grasp. And so Job repents from his accusation and demand that God justify himself to Job. In chapter 40, verse 3, Job answered the Lord halfway through these questionings. I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. And in chapter 42, Job said, I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes.
And interestingly then, the Lord turns to the three mates of Job and rebukes them and says, you guys haven't spoken of me what's right the way Job has. It's interesting that there's something in the heart of Job's uh, central uh, yearning and, and confidence in God's justice despite his own innocence that stands up in a way that his mates, who might be in some ways theologically neat and tidy, but somewhat lacking in any compassion or uh, nuance, are accused of the ones who spoke wrong. Isn't that interesting? It comes back to that quote from the beginning, that there's a kind of faith that rebels against God, that is real with God, and so speaks what's right about God in some central sense, even though Job admits he overstepped the bounds, whereas these friends need to repent. They haven't spoken what's right. Isn't that interesting? And so Job offers mediating, reconciling sacrifices for them that they might be forgiven and restored. And then blessings are restored to Job greater than he enjoyed before in the closure of the book. After this, the book ends. Job lived 140 years and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. So he died old and full of years. So that's the story. What's the purpose of it all then? What's the purpose of Job's experience and it being in the scripture for us? Firstly, as the beginning of the book tells us, the suffering of Job is prompted by a cosmic struggle beyond the observable things of this world and beyond the controllable theology of the people of this world. We get this story uh, of, of a wager with God and the devil. Of course, that leads us with many questions as well. Why does the Lord even engage with the Satan? Why doesn't he just go, who are you? What? I don't care. Whatever you reckon. Um, uh, it's not that he's an insecure, envious God who's, who's playing dice with Job because... He got teased by the Satan. Rather, if you, if you pay attention to, granted that it's a storytelling style, you pay attention to the details the author wants to show us. And there are a few things to notice. The first is, God and the Satan are not equals. It's not God meets his match in Satan, and now who will win? And they, they, they wrestle over kind of Job. No, so Satan comes into his God's presence, is allowed into God's presence, has to answer at God's demand and request and can only do anything if God permits it. And in fact, as the book goes on, Satan is so largely irrelevant to the book, he vanishes from the rest of it. <laughs> it's hardly kind of the big contest, the Lord versus God, who will win? Um, a second thing to observe is it still is Satan who is directly responsible for the trouble Job faces, not God directly. So there's a mysterious dimension to God's dealings with the world that involves secondary causes. You can't say when everything bad happens to you, as Job says, because he doesn't know what's behind the curtain, why has God chosen explicitly, deliberately, purposefully to do this to me in some one-to-one -one sense? If it's saying anything else, those first chapters of the book are saying it's more complicated than that. God's will involves permitting in his will, not simply direct mathematical button pushing. Yeah? 
A third thing, and this is a hard one to wrap your head around because at first it sounds weird, because we think about God as just a bigger human, but God is concerned for his own glory. Now that sounds weird because it sounds like it's an ego trip thing that God somehow goes, oh, what, you're taking away from my glory? Ain't no one takes away the Lord's glory, yo. Um, it's not this kind of thing. It's not like he speaks like a white guy trying to speak like a black guy. <laughs> um, because the... the Rather, you've got to remember, this is the Lord Creator who is the source of all goodness and all justice and all truth. So when God is vindicating his own glory, justice and truth, he's vindicating glory and justice and truth. When Etienne vindicates himself and his own glory, he's just vindicating Etienne. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's why it feels weird defending your own glory because that normally comes from a place of insecurity and, and, and ego. Whereas we've got to remember the Lord is the creator. He is the source of all that is good and right and true. We need him to be concerned for his own glory. And whenever we're concerned with justice and truth and goodness, we are concerned for God's glory too. And he's ultimately victorious in defending his glory and facing this lesser accuser. His wager is right. The Job has spoken of me what is right. 42 verse 8. Perhaps uh, uh, even the descriptions of some, some theologians have reflected even the descriptions of the behemoth and the leviathan, especially the leviathan, this over-the-top fire-breathing monstrousness, uh, ties back in with, with a lot of ancient um, uh, mythologies about evil sea monsters. You get Rahab throughout the book as well, another word for this leviathan character. Perhaps this is a little hint at some wonder of God's power over all the evil forces of the world. Perhaps. God is victorious. God's glory is justified. God's goodness is justified. God's servants are justified in their sincerity. And so the book of Job is part of a larger theme in Scripture of God's victory. The larger story of Scripture of God's victory over chaos, evil, sin, human empires, rebellious angels. The Lord God, the Creator, the Good One, will be victorious. Justice will reign. Peace will will rise like the dawn. And this theme comes to a, like a climax in the New Testament where Jesus is said to be the victor. Not just the forgiver and the saviour and the Lord, but the one who triumphs over sin, death, the condemnation of the law, the devil and all his angels, the empires of the world. In his death, he cancels out any claim or accusation the devil has. In his resurrection, he's now the Lord of all, the last time judge and saviour and so this is a little part of that bigger theme where ultimately the Lord triumphs over the devil so that the Lord can be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus secondly what's the purpose of the suffering that Job learns to trust through mysterious suffering there is such a thing as mysterious suffering the book of Job says. So if you're suffering and you don't know why and it doesn't seem right and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't seem fair, the book of Job says, yeah, that happens sometimes. That's a reality. When you say, why God, why? The book of Job says, yep, God's people pray that sometimes. It's a challenge for us to sit in mystery, in humility, in worship as Job comes to at the end of the book to say, I, I, I have nothing to say. I just need to sit in God being God 
and me being his servant in mystery. At the peak of his shrillness in the book, Job overreaches. Chapter 27, verses 1 and 2 says, God is unjust. That's part of what he needs to repent of. And throughout the book, at points, he almost, because he can't know what's going on behind the curtain, he almost accuses God of doing Satan's work. God being like the Leviathan in various ways. The Lord doesn't reveal all that to him fully, but just says, humans in God's world can't know everything, don't get told everything, don't need to know everything. The challenge of God is, what don't you know? You need to sit with what you don't know. And at least for Job, that's enough. And I'm telling you, Job exists partly to tell you, in the end, for God's people, that has to be enough. You have to get to a point in the midst of what temptations and aches and struggles and disappointments come your way, that God is God, that God is glorious, that God is good, and that I don't get it all, is enough. A rational... Uh, right, thoughtful, faithful admission of things beyond my understanding. And if I can't let that happen, then yeah, I can shipwreck my faith on my emotional torment, on my uh, intense attempts to make it all make sense to my little brain. And thirdly, what's the purpose of the suffering? Uh, What's the purpose of the story? As we've already touched on here, in a sense, there's hints that Job grows through this mysterious suffering. That's not simply he comes to terms with it and that's that, but the process of coming to terms with it itself is a growing and a deepening of Job's faith. Elihu hints at this in his speech. That was the young guy I mentioned, who we didn't realise was there until like episode nine. Um, he, um, he hints at God's can discipline us and teach us through suffering. Is there something of that going on? That he's deepening in his... Here's how Tim Keller puts it. I think Keller, as often is the case, goes a little bit over the top with his prose and, and maybe overstates the case. Um, but, but I think there's something, of, something helpful in here. Here's how Keller puts it. God allows Satan to test Job. Why? I believe it meant that God knew Job already loved him, and yet there was still a need for Job's love to be refined in a way that would do enormous good. Down through the ages, the suffering was allowed to bring Job to a level of greatness, to grow into a true, free lover of God who has the depth of joy unknown to the mercenary, conditional, religious observer. We must ordinarily go through a stripping. We must feel that to obey God will bring us no benefits at all. It's at that point that seeking God, praying to God and obeying God will begin to change us. And so the expanded life with God that Job eventually receives can come to him only by God not telling him why he suffered. God would have been cooperating with Job's impulse for self-justification had he given him those reasons. Instead... The experience of suffering leads Job to the place where he loved and trusted God simply because he is God. That's deep stuff right there. That's deep dark arts right there of the Christian faith. 
learning to see God as the greatest blessing of all. I am your hope, God says to Abraham, I'm your true reward. I guess our whole lives are kind of learning and relearning and talking to ourselves about this again and again. It's that project, it's that understanding that is a really, in a sense, we kind of pull apart the premise of the title happyology by saying chasing after happiness is really the misguided aim. Chasing after God and blessing and peace with God and that any good things that come from that, that's, that's the goal. And that ultimately brings us to the blessings in their right place that do truly last. So that Jesus' brother, James, can remind us of the story of Job and say, remember his perseverance and remember what the Lord finally brought about. Because God in the end isn't about just telling us that all the good stuff and the happy stuff doesn't matter. No, 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 he's not like a Buddhist or a Stoic in that way. No, God is actually saying those things do matter and in their place, in the right time, when my purposes reach their fulfilment, you'll have it all with me in glory. But why is the book so long? I guess you'll never know, because we're out of time. Let's pray. Uh, not long. <laughs> <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning to dwell upon this, um, uh, this great and rich and absorbing story of Job. Uh, and we ask for the central wisdom and humility and, uh, um, and grasp of you in your godness for us to have something of that, whether in good times or in bad times. Thank you for his perseverance and what you finally brought about. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, his perseverance through suffering and what that achieved in the final victory over Satan and sin and death, all for our blessing and good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.